you ever look back on your life and remember someone that you thought would be a friend for life? One person who was like that for me was my college roommate. His name was Wally. And we were both from California, but from different parts of the state. You know, it's a big state, so I was from Southern California. He was from Northern California. And so we didn't know each other growing up. But when we met in college, we became instant friends. We found out that we were both like rabid baseball fans. We were both journalism majors. And we just got along quickly. In fact, we got along a lot better than either of us did with the roommates that we had been assigned to by the school. And so we decided that when we came back the next school year that we were going to go off campus, rent an apartment together, and, uh, and we, we were excited about that. But that summer between those two years, something happened to me that changed everything. I got grace-bombed. Now, if you don't know what that phrase means, then that probably means you weren't here last week. You can go back and look online and find it a video or an audio of that. But uh, we learned last week that grace is a gift that is given to someone who did nothing to deserve it. And that's exactly what I got from Jesus that summer between my sophomore and junior years in college. Um, And it wasn't because I was unusually religious. It wasn't because I was unhappy with my life or I was searching for something more. For some reason that had nothing to do with my worthiness and everything to do with his kindness, Jesus just made himself real to me, and he called me to follow him. And when I put my faith in him, when I believed that he died on a cross for my sins, he erased from my record everything that I had ever done wrong, and he promised me that I was going to be with him in heaven forever. And then he put his spirit in my life so that suddenly I had the power to actually live life the way that God had planned for me to live it. It was by far the most dramatic thing that had ever happened to me. The question was, how was I going to tell Wally? I mean, what would he think? Would he, would he be attracted to the changes that he saw in my life and want to become a Christian as well? Or, or would, um, would we be able to just kind of you know, accept each other's spiritual differences and just continue our friendship? Or would we end up going our separate ways? I remember how hard I, I tried to hide my faith uh, from Wally at first. But it just didn't work because too much had changed. It was obvious that I was a different person. And finally we had a heart-to-heart talk and... To his credit, Wally supported my decision to become a Christian, but he said that it just wasn't for him. And despite my prayers for his salvation, uh, we grew apart. And by the second semester of that year, we were no longer roommates. That was 38 years ago. And here's a weird footnote. Uh, Both Wally and I eventually moved from California to New England. And uh, both of us are what you might call struggling writers. I know that because somehow we got connected again online not too long ago. I don't know if it was Facebook or what it was, but we kind of emailed back and forth for a while, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to get reconnected uh, here soon. And if we do, no doubt both of us will think, man, has that guy changed? Like he'll say, Greg used to have hair. He was a lot skinnier back then, you know, stuff like that. But... um, He's also, I hope, going to notice changes in my life. Um, and, and, and among the many factors that have kind of made me the person that I am, I hope that one of them 
is the grace bomb that God dropped on me all those years ago. You see, grace is supposed to change people. If you take two otherwise similar people, one of whom has been grace-bombed by God and the other one who hasn't, there should be evidence of that grace invasion in the Christian's life. But what kind of evidence? We might think of you know, certain uh, disciplines that we have, Bible study, prayer, going to church, stuff like that, but there's deeper stuff that grace does. The New Testament actually talks about three specific qualities that people who have received God's grace tend to exhibit. This is what should be evident in your life and my life because we follow Jesus. I'm just going to have you write these things down as, as we go. First, grace produces gratitude. Jot that down on your note sheet. Grace produces gratitude. And then open your Bible or your Bible app to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's page 721. We actually read this passage last week, but um, I want us to take a second look at it because last week we focused primarily on the grace that Jesus gave to the woman in this passage. But today I want us to really hone in on what that grace produced in her life. We're going to start reading in verse 36 of Luke 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. I know you can read that and you go, well, how do you recline at a table? Um, but, you know, back in Jesus' day, they had, the tables were a different height than they were. Here, have you ever gone to a Chinese restaurant where you could actually sit cross-legged on the floor and, and the table was really low. I, there was one of those. I used to go there, but then once I had to have two people help me up afterwards, I stopped doing that. Well, back in Jesus' day, the table was even lower than that. It was so low to the ground that the way that they sat at the table was they'd put pillows around the table and they'd lean maybe on their left elbow and then re- eat with their right hand with their feet kind of sprawled out behind them. You've got to kind of picture that to see, uh, understand this scene. Verse 37 says, A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Everybody wants to know who this woman was. Um, And there's been a lot of speculation about it. Like some people think it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, because in two other Gospels, Mary comes and anoints the head of Jesus with... um, with this alabaster jar of perfume. And they think, well, maybe Luke just remembered it differently and it was actually her. And other people say, no, I think it was Mary Magdalene because she was a sinful woman. You know, the Bible doesn't actually say that. It's like a posthumous reputation that she has that she was a prostitute. How would you like to have that? You know, you die and all of a sudden they think you were a prostitute. That's what she got. And so some people think that's who this was. But the the text doesn't tell us um, who it was. It doesn't even tell us what sin she was kind of known for. But it doesn't really matter because knowing what we know about human nature, it should not shock us to hear it said of this woman that she had lived a sinful life because who hasn't? And the same could be said of the Pharisee, despite his reputation as a righteous man. If he was honest with himself, Um, he would have to admit that his public image was a lot better than his private world. See, there are people who are obviously sinful, and there are people who are secretly sinful. Which kind of sinner are you? 
Or maybe you don't think of yourself as a sinner. Oh, you'll admit to having made some mistakes in your life, but by and large, honestly now, you, you just think, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, even going to church is part of your squeaky, queen, your squeaky clean lifestyle. And, and, and not to brag, but you would say that you probably deserve to be close to God and rewarded by Him. Because you have consistently made hard choices to do what you know is right in a world that is littered with people who just go all out in doing what they know is wrong. I once asked a man about his spiritual condition and he said to me, God is going to be lucky to have me in heaven. That was really the perspective of this Pharisee. The woman, on the other hand, had kind of sinned all of the self-righteousness out of her life. She knew that she didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of making it to heaven. That is, until she got grace-bombed. Now, this story doesn't tell us when it happened or how it happened. But she is obviously a freshly forgiven person. How do we know that? Well, just watch her. Verse 37 says that she came into the Pharisee's home with an alabaster jar of perfume, no doubt a valuable possession. And verse 38, as she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Stop there for a minute. Have you ever wept with gratitude that God has forgiven you? Has your... Awareness of his grace ever made you come undone. And this woman was so thankful that she made a scene. The tears were just falling down her face, dripping off her chin, actually splashing the feet of Jesus. And, and finally, Luke says she bent down and she wiped his feet with her hair. And then she kissed his feet and poured perfume on them. It was really um, inappropriate socially and scandalous because this was a woman that religious people literally would not ever be caught touching. They'd be afraid of being contaminated. And so, verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and, and, and what kind of a woman she is. That she's a sinner. What arrogance. And what ignorance. This man was delusionally self-righteous. And although he did not object out loud, Jesus answered him, verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And we might expect Jesus at this point to just put him in his place. To say something like, dude, look in the mirror. Something like that. But he doesn't do that. See, Jesus tended to address people according to their self-perception. Simon considered himself to be a, a relatively righteous person. Someone who, assuming that God grades on the curve, deserves an A+. So Jesus made him the less needy character in a parable. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One, and maybe at this point he kind of glanced over at the woman, owed him 500 denarii. 
and the other, and now he's kind of eyeball to eyeball with the Pharisee. Fifty. Five hundred. Fifty. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. What does that say to those who think that God will be lucky to have them in heaven? He doesn't owe them. They owe him. But he is a gracious God. He's, he's a God who forgives all sinners, every sin, whether their rap sheet is short or long. But which of them will love him more? That's the question that Jesus asked Simon. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. That would have been a common courtesy. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, the customary greeting of the day. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, which apparently was also an act of hospitality, strange as that sounds to us. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. In other words, the intensity of her love for Jesus revealed her awareness of the depth and the filth of her sins that he had forgiven. But how do you explain the the lack of gratitude, the absence of affection in the behavior of the Pharisee? Well, Jesus said, whoever has been forgiven little, that is, whoever is clueless about how, how utterly sinful and desperately needy of grace they are, loves little. I think I've always been aware of my, of my sinfulness, at least since, since I became a Christian I have. Uh, but there have been times when I've kind of seen myself as a 50 denarii sinner. And there have been other times when there was no escaping the fact that I was a 500 denarii sinner. And strange as it sounds, my sweetest days with Jesus have been those when I have been most aware of my sin. I have never felt the love of God more intensely than when I have seen myself most accurately. That's when I weep for joy at the grace of God. That's that's when I blubber with gratitude. Have you ever done that? Has the awareness of your need for grace and the fact that God gave it to you ever brought tears to your eyes? You see, grace, when it is fully grasped, always produces gratitude. But there's a second byproduct of grace that Jesus talked about uh, in Matthew 18. So if you you have a um, hardbound Bible right now, you're just going to go left in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. It's page 688. Jesus revealed this second trait in response to a question uh, that Simon Peter asked him, one of his apostles. 
And, and it, perhaps it wasn't information that Simon was seeking, but affirmation. In verse 21 of Matthew 18, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? That seemed magnanimous enough to merit a compliment from Christ. But Jesus answered him, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or as some translations say, 70 times seven. In other words, we should place no limit on the number of times we will forgive someone who mistreats us. Amen? So how are you doing with that? If you've ever been deeply wounded by anyone, you know how hard it is to forgive them once. But then, to have them do the same thing to you a second time, and to have to forgive them again, and then to have that excruciating cycle repeat itself over and over again, who forgives like that? Well, God does. How many times have you committed the same sin over and over again? And how many times has God forgiven you? Seventy times seven, right? Therefore, Jesus says in verse 23, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Okay, now who's the servant in this story? You are. I am. There's no pretending that we're 50 denarii sinners in this story. No, no. We owed God a debt that we could never pay. And he grace-bombed us with these blood-red words stamped on our bill, paid in full. How should that kind of grace change the way that we relate to those who have hurt us far less than we have hurt God. Well, here's what's supposed to happen. Grace is supposed to produce graciousness. Right? We're supposed to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave us. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4.32. Grace bomb others just as God grace bombed you. But that's not what happened in this story. Instead, verse 28, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. What's wrong with this picture? The grace of God did not produce in that man's heart what it was intended to produce. See, grace is not just what God gives to us. 
Grace is what God gives through us. And if we're willing to receive grace, but not give it, that totally changes our relationship with God and our quality of life. Keep reading. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, God would never do that to us, would he? And he would never like, withdraw his grace because of ungraciousness on our part, right? Wrong. Verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So does that mean that a refusal to forgive will cost us our salvation? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, we're still going to go to heaven. The problem is that we're going to forfeit the kind of life that God wants us to enjoy on earth. God himself will turn his back on us. Yeah, he was a judge who pounded the gavel and said not guilty. But he's also our father. And if we are not forgiving toward others, God will turn his back on us. And we will languish in an emotional prison of our own making. And this isn't the only place that Jesus taught that. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, back in chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, right after Jesus taught us to pray, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us, he said, for if you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's not a legal declaration. It's a relational principle. Fellowship with God is broken by unforgiveness toward others. And that bitterness that grows in the unforgiving heart will torture us until we finally give to others the same grace that God has given to us. And you might be thinking of this situation in your life where you were hurt so deeply and you're thinking, well, you know, I'd like to, but forgiveness is not that easy. And all I can say is, I know. Forgiving those who have hurt me deeply has been the hardest thing I've ever done as a Christian. Oh, I've gone through the motions. I pray through the Lord's Prayer most every day, and so as I've done that, I've, said, I've forgiven certain people over and over and over and over again. Every single day, I, I forgive them. And I'm, I'm not forgiving them for repeat offenses. I'm, I'm forgiving them for the one thing that they did that hurt me that deeply, and, I, and I'm doing it just to beat back the bitterness that is as new every morning as are the mercies of God. And there's nothing harder than, than forgiving somebody who doesn't even ask for it. 
In my own experience, I've learned that I can forgive without waiting for an apology, like Jesus did when he was hanging on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And yet I have never felt so free as I did when the one I had forgiven day after day for many years finally said, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Later, I wrote somewhere, my will forgave him a thousand times, but my heart had to be asked. So I'm not one who's ever going to trivialize forgiveness. It's the hardest thing for a disciple of Jesus to do. But the fact remains, for every person who has sinned against us seven times, we have sinned against God 70 times 7. And it's for our benefit. It's for our intimacy with God. It's for our release from torture that Jesus demands that we forgive those who have hurt us. It is required of those who have received grace that they also give grace. No exceptions. And then there's one more thing that, that grace produces. And this is going to kind of sound ironic, I think, to some of us. Grace produces godliness. Write that down. Grace produces godliness. And then let me show this to you. You need to go right in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, page 835. The reason some people think that that grace and godliness are like oil and water is because grace is given to ungodly people. Grace is what God gives to those who can't get their act together. We fail in our efforts to be righteous, and so God declares us to be righteous on the basis of the resume of Jesus. It's not that we are righteous, it's that he treats us as if we are righteous. Grace makes unholy people as holy as Jesus in the eyes of God. It's such an amazing, not to mention irrevocable gift that some people think of it as a free pass, as the ultimate loophole. They they think, you know, I have the righteousness of Christ, so why do the hard work of actually pursuing righteousness in, in my life. Why not just sow my wild oats now and quote John 3.16 to God when I get to heaven? I, I know, I, I know I shouldn't think like that, but tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I can't have my cake and eat it too. Jude wrote about people like that. It's on the page right before you get to the book of Revelation in your Bible, that he says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. The New Living Translation says that they say that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Is that right? Well, look at what Paul says in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, 
that offers salvation to all people. It, and what is it? The grace of God. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's a long sentence. But man, you need to just like marinate in that for a while. Because this is what the grace of God does. It does not give us permission to keep on sinning. Instead, it gives us the power to become in real life what we already are in Christ. If you like theological words, let me say it this way. Grace is not only what justifies us. Grace is also what sanctifies us. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Grace gives us the strength to say no to ungodliness and wickedness and worldly passions, Paul says. He says that grace is what what enables us to live upright, self-controlled, godly, pure lives. He says that grace is what makes us eager to do good. See, grace is so much more than forgiveness. Grace is, is also redemption and purification. It doesn't just change our destiny. It changes our lives in this present age. One of the ways that my life was changed instantly when I um, became a Christian was in my speech. I mean, I had a really foul mouth. In fact, I remember a time when I was on a high school backpacking trip with my youth group at church, and I was dropping bombs, not grace bombs, so often that finally one of the adult volunteers turned to me and, and, and rebuked me in front of everybody. I don't remember his exact words, but it was something like, I'm sick and tired of hearing you use the F word. I was humiliated. But it didn't change me. However hard I tried to clean up my, my, my mouth, I didn't. I couldn't. I'd formed a habit that I couldn't break. But when I became a Christian, I immediately stopped cussing. And it, it, it wasn't something that, that I was trying to do. It's just something that happened overnight with no effort on my part. There was like this new power source inside of me. And it affected everything. Now, of course, there were, there were a lot of other changes that, that have taken a lot more time, a lot more effort. But are we okay? Can somebody tell me who they're helping right now? Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now for you to touch him with your power and grace. Thank you, Jesus, for, for helping him right now. Help him to feel your love and restore him fully. In Jesus' name, amen. I think he probably just fainted, and I think he's going to be fine. So I think what I'm going to do is just change the plan a little bit. I am going to go ahead and close the service. Why don't we just go ahead and quietly leave the room so that we can kind of leave this space? Please, don't just head for home. Hang around out in the, in the lobby and enjoy some time with your friends. Thank you.